What on earth? Hello, everybody. What y'all been up to? Hey, that's right. It is Sam indeed. Yeah, so I did get set back just a moment, but I am here now. This is what I get. This is what I get for trying to stream even though Mama Cass isn't here. I am. I'm alive-ish. I'm kind of alive. Rubik says Sam got eaten by metal spiders. So you got to be careful. They are just running around everywhere. You got to be very, very careful. Okay. Let's get this thing, shall we? Last week, you thought it would never come. Last week on Percy Jackson and the Olympians, the lightning thief. We are reaching kind of what feels like the end of our journey. We've definitely gotten close, right? As we travel with Percy and with Annabeth, what is going through our minds? Well, we've got, of course, um, the, the various things that are part of the journey itself. We've got... Uh, um, uh, the promise that we made to a god named Ares, uh, the god of war, to pick up his stuff out of an old, you know, old uh, old park. Uh, we take a zebra to Vegas. Basically, they are on a uh, they're on a truck carrying some animals, and uh, that gets them most of the way across. Now, this is a chapter in which we really get a chance to kind of get to know Annabeth and Grover a little bit better. Mostly Annabeth, it seems like. We kind of finally put some pieces together here. What is it that sort of links Luke and Grover and Annabeth? Why does it seem like Percy is kind of always on the outside of some some sort of a relationship there? You know, some, some pre-established relationship? Well, it sounds like Luke and Annabeth and Talia... The girl, uh, the the son of Zeus, son of Zeus, the daughter of Zeus, and the um, I don't know the well, frankly, the tree that's on Half Blood Hill. They all had been led into camp by Grover, um, and really, it was it was Talia that Grover was supposed to save, and was the only one of the three that he couldn't. So Talia was turned into a tree. Um, that's how that all shook out this happens. Uh, they have this little discussion, and then, of course, Percy falls asleep, as one must on some of these trips. It sounds like everything stays pretty weird, even though Percy's asleep. He's getting these 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 visions, uh, and he sees a girl who he realizes, oh, okay, hold on, that's... who is that? That's Talia. And he overhears a conversation, um, a conversation between someone planning, uh, you're well named the crooked one, uh, and then, you know, so like the crooked one, and then a, uh, a minion of sorts, we charge all the way through all that, uh, and then of course they escape out of the back of this, uh, out of the back of this truck, and they end up in a hotel. Kind of a swanky little spot. What is this spot? Well, they have to find their way out of a, a casino. Um, it's called the Lotus Casino, and again, I think I mentioned it last week, they noticed that, that time's going by a little bit strangely, even though this place has got just about everything they could possibly want, and then Percy notices, oh, there's somebody in here maybe from the 60s or the 70s, and they realize that they've been in here for days. The Island of the Lotus Eaters, if y'all are interested in looking that up. And so, there we have it. That is our review. Let's get down to business. Percy Jackson and the Olympians. The Lightning Thief. Chapter 17. We shop for waterbeds. <laughs> I 
Intikana says, also, Sam, the idea for your food truck with spaghetti on a stick is genius. If you've got garlic bread crust on the outside to hold it place, it would seal the deal. That's exactly what I was thinking. Sort of a garlic bread, sort of uh, breadcrumb mixture. Yep. It would look a lot like a corn dog from the outside. Like a, like a, like a garlic herb corn dog. There we go. All right. All right. I got to focus. Chapter 17. We shop for waterbeds. It was Annabeth's idea. She loaded us into the back of a Vegas taxi as if we actually had money and told the driver, Los Angeles, please. The cabbie chewed on his cigar and sized us up. It's like 300 miles. For that, you got to pay up front. You accept casino debit cards? Annabeth asked. He shrugged. Some of them. Same as credit cards. You got to swipe them first, though. Annabeth handed him her green lotus cash card. He looked at it skeptically. Swipe it, Annabeth invited. He did. His meter machine started rattling. The lights flashed. Finally, an infinity symbol came up next to the dollar sign. The cigar fell out of the driver's mouth. He looked back at us, eyes wide. Where, uh, where to in Los Angeles, huh, your highness? Santa Monica Pier. Annabeth sat up a little straighter. I could tell she liked the Your Highness thing. Get us there fast and you can keep the change. Maybe she shouldn't have told him that. The cab's speedometer never dipped below 95 the whole way through the Mojave Desert. On the road, we had plenty of time to talk. I told Annabeth and Grover about my latest dream, but the details got sketchier the more I tried to remember them. The Lotus Casino seemed to have short-circuited my memory. I couldn't recall what the invisible servant's voice had sounded like, though I was sure somebody knew. The servant had called the monster in the pit something other than my lord. Some special name or title. Um, the silent one? Annabeth suggested. The rich one? Both of those are nicknames for Hades. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. It sounds like the throne room was like Hades, Grover said. That's the way that it's usually described. I shook my head. Something's wrong. The throne room wasn't the main part of the dream, and that voice from the pit, I don't, I don't know, it just... It didn't feel like a god's voice. Annabeth's eyes widened. What? I asked. Oh, nothing, it's... I was just, it has to be Hades. Maybe he sent this thief, this invisible person, to get the master bolt, and something went wrong. Like what? I, I, I don't know, she said. But if he stole Zeus's symbol of power from Olympus and the gods were hunting, I mean, a, a lot of things could have gone wrong. So this thief had to hide the bolt, or he lost it somehow. Anyway, he failed to bring it to Hades. That's, that's what the voice in your dream said, right? The guy failed. That would explain what the Furies were searching for when they came after us on the bus. Maybe they thought we had retrieved the bolt. I wasn't sure what was wrong with her. She looked pale. But, okay, I mean, if I had already retrieved the bolt, I said, why would I be traveling to the underworld? To threaten Hades? 
Grover suggested. Do bribe or blackmail him into getting your mum back? I whistled. Okay, you got evil thoughts for a goat. Why, thank you. That thing in the pit said that it was waiting for two items, I said. If the master bolt is one, what's the other? Grover shook his head, clearly mystified. Annabeth was looking at me as though she knew my next question and was quietly willing me not to ask it. You got an idea what might have been in that pit, don't you? I asked her. I mean, if it's not Hades. Percy, let's not talk about it, because if it isn't Hades, no, it, it has to be Hades. Wasteland rolled by. We passed a sign that said, California State Line, 12 miles. I got the feeling I was missing one simple, critical piece of information. It was like when I was staring at a common word I should know, but I couldn't make sense of it, because one or two letters were floating around. The more I thought about my quest, the more I was sure that confronting Hades wasn't the real answer. There was something else going on. Something even more dangerous. The problem was, we were hurtling toward the underworld at 95 miles an hour, betting that Hades had the master bolt. If we got there and found out we were wrong, we wouldn't have time to correct ourselves. The solstice deadline would pass, and the war would begin. The answer is in the underworld, Annabeth assured me. You saw the spirits of the dead, Percy. There's only one place that could be. We're doing the right thing. She tried to boost our morale by suggesting clever strategies for getting into the land of the dead, but my heart just wasn't in it. There were too many unknown factors. It was like cramming for a test without knowing the subject. Believe me, I'd done that enough times. The cab sped west. Every gust of wind through Death Valley sounded like a spirit of the dead. Every time the brakes hissed in an 18-wheeler, it reminded me of Echidna's reptilian voice. At sunset, the taxi dropped us at the beach in Santa Monica. It looked exactly the way that beaches do in movies, only it smelled much worse. There were carnival rides lighting the pier, palm trees lining the sidewalks, homeless guys sleeping in sand dunes, and surfer dudes waiting for the perfect wave. Grover, Annabeth, and I walked down to the edge of the surf. What now? Annabeth asked. The Pacific was turning gold in the setting sun. I thought about how long it had been since I'd stood on the beach at Montauk, on the opposite side of the country, looking out at a different sea. How could there be a god who controlled all that? What did my science teacher used to say? Two-thirds of the Earth's surface was covered in water? How could I be the son of someone... That powerful. I stepped into the surf. Hey, Percy, Annabeth said. What are you doing? I kept walking, up to my waist, then my chest. She called after me. You know how polluted that water is? There are all kinds of toxic... And that's when my head went under. 
I held my breath at first. It's difficult to intentionally inhale water. Finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. I gasped. Sure enough, I could breathe normally. I walked down into the shoals. I shouldn't have been able to see through the murk, but somehow I could tell where everything was. I could sense the rolling texture at the bottom. I could make out sand dollar colonies dotting the sandbars. I could even see the currents, warm and cold streams swirling together. I felt something rub against my leg. I looked down and almost shot out of the water like a ballistic missile. Sliding along beside me was a five-foot-long mako shark. But the thing wasn't attacking. It was nuzzling me, healing like a dog. Tentatively, I touched its dorsal fin. It bucked a little, as if inviting me to hold on tighter. I grabbed the fin with both hands. It took off, pulling me along. The shark carried me down into the darkness. It deposited me at the edge of the ocean proper, where the sandbank dropped off a huge chasm. It was like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon at midnight, not being able to see much, but knowing the void was right there. The surface shimmered, maybe 150 feet above. I knew I should be crushed by the pressure. Then again, I shouldn't have been able to breathe. Wondering if there was a limit to how deep I could go. I felt I could sink straight to the bottom of the Pacific. And then I saw something glimmering in the darkness below, growing bigger and brighter as it rose toward me. A woman's voice, like my mother's, called, Percy Jackson. And she got closer. Her shape became clearer. She had flowing black hair, a dress made of green silk. Light flickered around her, and her eyes were so distractingly beautiful I could hardly notice the stallion-sized seahorse she was riding. She dismounted. The seahorse and the mako shark whisked off and started playing something that looked like tag. The underwater lady smiled at me. You've come far, Percy Jackson. Well done. I wasn't sure what to do, so I bowed. You're the woman who spoke to me in the Mississippi River. Yes, my child. I am a Nereid, a spirit of the sea. It was not easy for me to appear so far upriver, but the Nyads, my freshwater cousins, helped sustain my life force. They honor Lord Brisaiden, even though they do not serve in his court. And... You serve in Poseidon's court? She nodded. It has been many years since a child of the sea god has been born. We have watched you with great interest. Suddenly I remembered the faces in the waves of Montauk Beach when I was a little boy. Reflections of smiling women. Like so many of the weird things in my life, I'd never given it much thought before. If my father's so interested in me, why isn't he here? Why doesn't he come and speak to me? A cold current rose out of the depths. Do not judge the Lord of the Sea too harshly, Nereid told me. He stands at the brink of an unwanted war. 
He has much to occupy his time. Besides, he is forbidden to help you directly. The gods may not show such favoritism. Even to their own children? Especially to them. The gods can work only by indirect influence. That's why I give you a warning and a gift. She held out her hand. Three white pearls flashed in her palm. I know you journey to Hades' realm, she said. Few mortals have ever done this and survived. Orpheus, who had great music skill. Hercules, who had great strength. Houdini, who could escape even the depths of Tartarus. Do you have these talents? Um, no, ma'am. Uh, do you have something else, Percy? You have gifts that you have only begun to know. The oracles have foretold a great and terrible fortune for you, should you survive to manhood. Poseidon would not have you die before your time. Therefore, take these. When you are in need, smash a pearl at your feet. What's going to happen? That, she said, depends on the need. But remember, what belongs to the sea will always return to the sea. What about the warning? Her eyes flickered with green light. Go with what your heart tells you, or you will lose all. Hades feeds on doubt and hopelessness. He will trick you if he can and make you mistrust your own judgment. Once you're in his realm, he will never willingly let you leave. Keep faith. Good luck, Percy Jackson. She summoned her seahorse and rode toward the void. Hey, wait, I called. At the river, you said not to trust the gifts. What gifts? Goodbye, young hero, she called back, her voice fading into the depths. You must listen to your heart. She became a speck of glowing green, and then... She was gone. I wanted to follow her down into the darkness. I wanted to see the court of Poseidon, but I looked up at the darkness, the sunset on the surface. My friends were waiting. We had so little time. I kicked upward toward the shore. When I reached the beach, my clothes dried instantly. I told Grover and Annabeth what had happened, and I showed them the pearls. Annabeth grimaced. No gift comes without a price. Ah, they were free. No, she shook her head. There's no such thing as a free lunch. That's an ancient Greek saying that translated pretty well into American. There will be a price. You wait. On that happy thought, we turned our backs to the sea. With some spare change from Ares's backpack, we took the bus into West Hollywood. I showed the driver the underworld address slip I'd taken from Auntie M's Garden Gnome Emporium, but he had never heard of DOA Recording Studios. Hey, um, you remind me of somebody I saw on TV, he told me. Are you a child actor or something? What? I'm a stunt double for a lot of child actors. Oh, that explains a lot. We thanked him and quickly got off at the next stop. 
They wandered for miles on foot, looking for DOA. Nobody seemed to know where it was. It didn't appear in the phone book. Twice, we ducked into alleyways to avoid cop cars. I froze in front of an appliance store window because a television was playing an interview with someone who looked very familiar. My stepdad, Smelly Gabe. He was talking to Barbara Walters. I mean, as if he were some kind of huge celebrity. She was interviewing him in our apartment, in the middle of a poker game, and there was a young blonde lady sitting next to him, patting his hand. A fake tear glistened on his cheek. He was saying, Honest, Miss Walters, if it wasn't for Sugar here, my grief counselor, I'd be a wreck. My stepson took everything from me. Everything that I cared about, my wife, my Camaro. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I still have trouble talking about it. There you have it, America. Barbara Walters turned to the camera. A man torn apart. An adolescent boy with serious issues. Let me show you again. The last known photo of this troubled young fugitive, taken a week ago in Denver. The screen cut to a grainy shot of me, Annabeth, and Grover standing outside the Colorado diner, talking to Ares. Who are the other children in this photo? Barbara Walters asked dramatically. Who was the man with them? Is Percy Jackson a delinquent, a terrorist, or perhaps the brainwashed victim of a frightening new cult? When we come back, we chat with a leading child psychologist. Stay tuned, America. Come on, Grover told me. He hauled me away before I could punch a hole in the appliance store window. It got dark, and hungry-looking characters started coming out on the streets to play. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a New Yorker. I don't scare easily, but L.A. had a totally different feel from New York. Back home, everything seemed close. Didn't matter how big the city was, you could get anywhere without getting lost. The street pattern, the subway, they made sense. It was a system to how things worked. A kid could be safe as long as he wasn't stupid. L.A. wasn't like that. It was spread out, chaotic, hard to move around. It reminded me of Ares. It wasn't enough for L.A. to be big. It had to prove it was big by being loud and strange and difficult to navigate, too. I didn't know how we were ever going to find the entrance to the underworld by tomorrow, the summer solstice. We walked past gangbangers bums, street hawkers, who looked as though they were trying to figure out if we were worth the trouble of mugging. As we hurried past the entrance of an alley, a voice from the darkness said, Hey, you! Like an idiot, I stopped. Before I knew it, we were surrounded. A gang of kids had circled us, six of them in all, white kids with expensive clothes and mean faces, like the kids at Yancey Academy. Rich brats playing at being bad boys. Instinctively, I uncapped Riptide. When the sword appeared out of nowhere, the kids backed off, but their leader was either really stupid or really brave, because he kept coming at me with a switchblade. I made the mistake of swinging. The kid yelped, but he must have been a 100% mortal, because the blade passed harmlessly right through his chest. He looked down. What the... I figured I had about three seconds before his shock turned to anger. 
Uh, Ron? I screamed at Annabeth and Grover. We pushed two kids out of the way and raced down the street, not knowing where we were going. We turned a sharp corner. There, Annabeth shouted. Only one store on the block looked open, its windows glaring with neon. The sign above the door said something like, Kirstuiz Watri Badi Alpace. Krusty's Waterbed Palace? Grover translated. It didn't sound like the sort of place I would go, except in an emergency, but hey, this definitely qualified. We burst through the doors, ran behind a waterbed, and ducked. A split seconds later, the gang of kids ran past outside. I think, I think that we lost them, Grover panted. A voice behind us boomed, Lost who? We all jumped. Standing right behind us was a guy who looked like a raptor in a leisure suit. He was at least seven feet tall, with absolutely no hair. He had gray, leathery skin, thick-lidded eyes, and a cold, reptilian smile. He moved toward us slowly, but got the feeling that he could move fast if he needed to. His suit must have come from Lotus Casino. It belonged back in the 70s, big time. The shirt was silk paisley unbuttoned halfway down his hairless chest. The lapels on his velvet jacket were as wide as landing strips. The silver chains around his neck, I couldn't even count them. I'm crusty, he said with a tartar yellow smile. I resist the urge to say, yes, you are. I'm sorry to barge in, I told him. We were just, um, browsing. You mean hiding from those no-good kids, he grumbled. They hang around every night. I get a lot of people in here thanks to them. Say, you want to look at a waterbed? I was about to say no thanks when he put a huge paw on my shoulder and steered me deeper into the showroom. There was every kind of waterbed you could imagine. Different kinds of wood, different patterns of sheets, queen size, king size, emperor of the universe size. This one's my most popular model. Krusty spread his hands proudly over a bed covered in black satin sheets with built-in lava lamps on the headboard. The mattress vibrated. It looked like oil-flavored jello. That's a million-hand massage, Krusty told us. Go on, try it out. Shoot, take a nap, I don't care. No business today, anyway. Uh, I said, I don't think... Million hand massage? Grover cried and dove in. Oh, you guys, this is so cool. Huh. Krusty said, stroking his leathery chin. Yeah, almost. Almost. Almost what? I asked. He looked at Annabeth. Do me a favor and try this one over here, honey. It might fit. Annabeth said, But what? He patted her reassuringly on the shoulder and led her to the Safari Deluxe model with teakwood lions carved into the frame and a leopard-patterned comforter. When Annabeth didn't want to lie down, Krusty pushed her. Hey! She protested. Krusty snapped his fingers. Ergo! Ropes snapped from the side of the bed lashing around Annabeth, holding her down to the mattress. Grover tried to get up, but ropes sprang from his black satin bed, too, and lashed him down. 
Not cool, he yelled, his voice vibrating from the million hand massage. Not cool at all. The giant looked at Annabeth, then turned toward me and grinned. Oh, almost. Darn it. I tried to step away, but his hand shot out and clamped around the back of my neck. Don't worry, kid, don't worry. We'll find you one in a second. Let my friends go. Oh, I sure will, but I gotta make him fit first. What do you mean? All the beds are exactly six feet, see? Your friends are too short, gotta make him fit. Annabeth and Grover kept struggling. Can't stand imperfect measurements, Krusty muttered. Ego! A new set of ropes leapt out from the top and bottoms of the beds, wrapping around Grover and Annabeth's ankles and then around their armpits. The ropes started tightening, pulling my friends from both ends. Don't worry, Krusty told me. These are stretching jobs, maybe three extra inches on their spines. They might even live. Now, why don't we find you a bed that you like, huh? Percy! Grover yelled. My mind was racing. I knew I couldn't take on this giant waterbed salesman alone. He would stab my neck before I ever got my sword out. Your real name's not Krusty, is it? I asked. Well, legally, it's Procrustes, he admitted. The stretcher, I said. I remembered the story. The giant who'd tried to kill Theseus with excess hospitality on his way to Athens. Yeah, said the salesman. But who can pronounce Procrustes? It's bad for business. Now, <laughs> now, Krusty, anybody can say that. You're right. It's got a good ring to it. His eyes lit up. You think so? Oh, absolutely, I said. And the workmanship on these beds? Fabulous. He grinned hugely, but his fingers didn't loosen up on my neck. I tell my customers that every time. Nobody bothers to look at the workmanship. How many built-in lava lamp headboards have you seen? And not many. That's right. Percy, Annabeth yelled. What are you doing? Don't mind her, I told Procrustes. She's impossible. The giant laughed. <laughs> All of my customers are... Never six feet exactly, so inconsiderate, and then they complain about the fitting. What do you do if they're longer than six feet? Oh, that happens all the time. It's a simple fix. He let go of my neck, but before I could react, he reached behind a nearby sales desk and brought out a huge double-bladed brass saw. He said, I just sent to the subject as best that I can and lop off whatever hangs off either end. Uh, okay. Um, I said, swallowing hard. Uh, sensible? I'm so glad I came across an intelligent customer. <laughs> the ropes were really stretching my friends now. Annabeth was turning pale. Grover made gurgling noises like a strangled goose. So, uh, Krusty, I said, trying to keep my voice light. I glanced at the sales tag on the Valentine's-shaped honeymoon special. 
Does this one really have dynamic stabilizers to stop wave motion? Absolutely. Try it out. Yeah, maybe I will, but I mean, it, it would work for a big guy like you, right? No waves at all? Guaranteed. I don't know. I don't think so. there's no way. Way? Show me. He sat down eagerly on the bed, patting the mattress. See? No waves. I snapped my fingers. Hey, go. Ropes lashed around Krusty and flattened him against the mattress. Hey! He yelled. Oh, center him just right, I said. The ropes readjusted themselves at my command. Krusty's whole head stuck out at the top. His feet stuck out at the bottom. No! No! He said. Wait a second, this is, uh, this is just a demo. I uncapped Riptide. A few simple adjustments? I had no qualms about what I had to do. If Krusty were human, I couldn't hurt him anyway. If he was a monster, he deserved to be turned into dust for a while. You drive a hard bargain, he told me. I'll give you 30% off on selective floor models. I think I'll start at the top. I raised my sword. No money down. No interest for six months. I swung the sword. Krusty stopped making offers. I cut the ropes on the other beds. Annabeth and Grover got to their feet, groaning and wincing and cursing me a lot. You look... you look taller, I said. Very funny, Annabeth said. Be faster next time. I looked at the bulletin board behind Krusty's sales desk. It was an advertisement for Hermes Delivery Service and another for the all-new Compendium of L.A. Area Monsters. The only monstrous yellow pages you'll ever need. Under that, a bright orange flyer for DOA Recording Studios, offering commissions for heroes' souls. We're always looking for new talent. DOA's address was right underneath with a map. Come on, I told my friends. Give us a minute, Grover complained. We were almost stretched to death. Well then, you're ready for the underworld, I said. It's only about a block from here. And there we go, folks. The end of our first chapter for the evening. That was a weird one, I think we can agree. And also very much a horror movie vibe. I think we, it's it's so strange. we got some great parallels between this and um, The Hobbit earlier this week, which, as I've mentioned before, is on Tuesdays. Um, if y'all are wondering about what on earth this might be, hello. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. This, in particular, is Thursday, which means this is Flying Sidecar. It's a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. But on Tuesdays, of course, we've got Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. And as we're reading through The Hobbit on Tuesdays, we have found a similar kind of horror movie vibe. For that one, it was much more sort of like The Witch or Blair Witch Project or one of those sort of like out in the wilderness, um, The Hollow Man, at least like the first act of that, um, that sort of stuff, right? Very, very much like, you know, people disappearing into the wilderness and, you know, voices in the dark, that kind of thing. This one is different. This one is like, I, I, I looked up Pericristes, like this, this is about what that legend did in, in Greek myth. Pericristes, am I saying that right? Something feels off about that. Is it just Pericristes? Where is it? Pericristes, 
Procrustes. There we go. Not Paracrustes. It's Procrustes. Um, Procrustes really did have a bed in this myth, this like iron bed. And if people didn't fit, he would stretch them out. Or it sounded like more often cut off things at either end. Like that is some really like misery. That's the that's what it's bringing to mind for me. Um, now, of course, all of this like horror movie talk for a fairly young book. Good grief. Good grief. Um, kind of a funny one to pick out, right? And I think, I, th I would guess that it's, you know, kind of plays into what seems to be Rick Reardon's overall impressions of L.A. Like, there's definitely this sort of predatory attitude toward it. Now, of course, you know, we didn't necessarily say St. Louis was kind of predatory in Rick Reardon's mind because there was a, you know, a mother of monsters there. But I think overall the discussion about L.A. in general is definitely one that feels much less sort of, well, less safe. It feels like it's trying to prove to everyone that it's big. Shotzi says, sounds like an original Cinderella story. Uh, yep, a little bit. Uh, Rowlett says, stretching slash chopping mattress service like Medusa statues. <laughs> Rowlett says, I don't understand how these businesses operate and never get found out. It's the mist. Yeah, Treebean says magic surrounding them. I think I think it's the mist. I think it's this sort of aura of legitimacy, or it's this basically it's this aura that sort of helps humans just kind of see whatever it is they think they should be seeing right there, or sometimes just what they want to see. Mirden's talking about a goose of some kind. Mighty Mage says uh, he had to get ahead in business. All right, now as per usual, totally unacceptable, Mighty Mage. Just despicable. I also have to try to make friends with my cat again because unfortunately I tried to I tried to hang out with Blue a little bit earlier today and that same moment, you know, he wasn't feeling it, so he tried to get away, but then his toe got his his little his little claw got caught in the blanket and uh he became like a whole mess of of hissing and like he, he even barked once, which I've never heard before. Uh he was really angry, but I was like, I can't I can't help because it freaks you out. And so I just had to like stay really still, but it looks like it looks like we're on the mend. Yeah, the mist does indeed. It creates illusions to mortals. Gwendog says, hey, Memnite isn't here. I just realized. Yeah, where's Memnite at? Memnite? Memnite, where you at, son? What are you up to? Yeah, poor Blue, says Gems. All right, what are we talking about here? Um, Luke says, I want a chapter about what inexorably draws heroes to monster holes. Yeah, it does seem that way, right? Because, you know, they're just wandering around in Los Angeles and they happen to find this monster shop. So either these things are a lot more common than we might expect, right? These things are just all over the place and that's why it's so easy to kind of stumble into them because, you know, it's not so much that you happened to like circumstantially end up in just the wrong spot at the wrong time it's that there are wrong spots all over the place and you would be hard-pressed not to fall into one fabriella says i'm so uncomfy potty from potter i'm glad you liked crusty's voice uh Rowlett says definitely horror movie vibe i think that was the first time percy kept his cool it does seem that way right as we're talking about this as we as we've read on and i i wanted y'all to keep an eye on when does when does Percy sort of make the heroic choice? And when doesn't he? It seems like we are watching as Percy starts to kind of come into his own. Luke says, I mean, some are chasing them, but Medusa and this guy? Yeah, exactly. So Echidna was like sent to find Percy. That one makes a lot of sense. Sort of caught up, 
caught up caught up to Percy. Uh, same with the Furies, but yeah, absolutely. Like Medusa and Krusty, like at this point, it seems like they're just sort of like tripping. And when they trip, wherever they fall, there lies a monster or a god or something nasty, right? Mighty Mage says he outsmarted Procrustes. It seems that way. It seems that way. Um, which is good because it sounds like he was not going to have a chance to... Uh, he was not going to have a chance to just like whip out his sword and, and smash this guy up because dealing with kind of a, a, a giant of a person. Now, let's talk about our chatter break question because I'm going to leave you with one and then I'm going to go take a break and then we're coming back for our second chapter of the night. JCA says, sometimes you are attracted to like things. So because they're half-blood, they're more likely to find the other god-blood or Greek monsters, etc. Yeah, it definitely, like, there, there's definitely some sort of magnetism here. But I think I'm going to rewind for our Chatterbreak question. I think I'm going to rewind. Back to Percy and, well, the uh, the Nereid. This is a, uh, a spirit of the sea and certainly someone who is very familiar with Poseidon. There's, there's an explicit mention, right? We, we finally find out, like, we, we get some confirmation at the very least that, well, the reason why Poseidon isn't more active in helping Percy out is that he can't be. Not only is he very busy, but, like, there are, there are rules and he can't be shown to, uh, to, to show favoritism. Now, with that, I think our Chatterbreak question becomes... Where's that line? Where's that line with favoritism? Because, you know, he was willing to cross the line before to have a child. And within all this, I think there's that larger question of parents and children in that relationship. What do you think this is? I think maybe that's the, the, the larger and better question. In all of this, with, with having Percy, you know, ha having the child Percy, but then, you know, treating the child Percy in, in a different way throughout most of his life. What do you think is, what do y'all see developing about this theme of the relationship of parent and child? What do y'all see developing in that theme of the relationship between parent and child? There's our chatter break question. I'll be back in five minutes and we're going to read another chapter for tonight, everybody. Thank you all for bearing with me, by the way. I know that was a late start. My whole day kind of like got, got, uh, kicked back a little bit. Um, so I really do appreciate it. Um. I'll try to be better about notifying you next time. So, everyone, I will see you in five minutes. I'm going to talk about this. We're going to do a little review, and then we're going to read our second chapter. I'll see you all then. Bye-bye. How are y'all? <laughs> I can see y'all have been having some pretty good discussions in there. Lisa, for instance, coming in hot with, well, considering the role models that all the gods had to base their parenting skills off of, um, I guess they were at least improving. I will say none of them are going to be in the running for mom slash dad awards. Yeah, I'm with you. Shotzi said, is it a law that dogs' noses have to be freezing? I think it is. Honestly, I think generally, yes. I think it's part of what they used to cool down. I don't think it's their, I think primarily it's their tongue, but I think, you know, it's just a lot of a lot of air moving past something wet, and so that means uh, that means evaporation. So yeah, I think technically we could consider it a law of thermo thermodynamics that doggo noses do indeed have to be really cold. By the way, who's all up in the Discord? Who's all up in this piece? Uh, double up twenty two. Now that's 
absolutely a new name. So Double Up 22, hello and welcome to you. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, Gertie, aka JCA, Holly Rose, Jade Dragon, Joseph Hartzler, Luis the Goat Lady, MMP, Sander, and Mighty Monkey. All right. Thank you, I'm new, says Europa. Okay, fantastic. It is wonderful to have you here. Um, I also want to go back over some of this stuff here, okay? Because Shotzi... Uh, you gave out a, uh, a community sub gift and 900 bits. Thank you a ton for that. Uh, and then, of course, Death Metal Dahlia. Thanks a bunch. Intikana subscribed. Subscribed. So that's a portmanteau, uh, as my brain does really enjoy constructing of subscribed and prime. That is a prime subscription. Thank you for subscribing. I I I appreciate your your subscriptions, Intikana. Thank you very much. Uh, and yeah, Sander, nine months already. Indeed. And what are y'all doing? <laughs> what are y'all been up to? I see there were a couple of, uh, I see there were some gifts in there. Some, some gift subs. Uh, Death Metal Dahlia, uh, Shotzi subscribing with Prime, and then some bits. Just like, chucking bits into the bin. What are you doing? <laughs> um, Death Metal Dahlia giving out another one. Oh, boy, oh boy. Dahlia says, surely I've been subscribed longer than this, but it's amazing to be a part of the community and watch you and this channel grow so much just in the last year. Here's to many more. We'll keep our fingers crossed, huh? Teen Bean says, my dog is sleeping and snoring on the floor in front of the couch. Wonderful. That sounds pretty good. That's like a pretty good setup tonight. Um, Tanisha says, I would say Athena seems to be decent since she helped when Annabeth ran away, but it's hard to be there for your children when you're not allowed to be around them or contact them. Yeah, and it's part of this, like, I think it's part of this overall responsibility, right? Because clearly they are responsible for not having children. And yet, uh, they're doing it anyway. So they're willing to break that rule. Hopefully they're going to be willing to break some rules in order to actually take care of these children, as opposed to just letting them fall into the world like so many little Lego men underneath the couch. I want to hear what else y'all have been talking about. Let's see. Teen Bean says, could he be trying to draw attention away from Percy to let him get his quest completed as well? That's an interesting theory. I kind of like that one. You know, he's he's busy elsewhere. And by busy, he means like really busy elsewhere, making a lot of stink so that uh, Percy kind of has less attention on him. So that only the, the lesser sort of stuff like Echidna, I guess. Well, see, I say that, but Echidna really is mother of all monsters. And so eh, maybe not. Maybe not, maybe not one of the lesser ones. Teen Bean says, uh, does Poseidon think that by helping Percy, it makes him look more guilty of like helping with the crime in the first place? That's another interesting theory. I like that. So it sounds like overall, there is kind of a, there's kind of a, I don't know, at least a theme here in chat. Some of y'all talking about how like there is a, a lot going on genuinely. Um, and this is part of kind of what we have to remember about, about the Greek pantheon. We've talked before about how this is not, you know, they, they mentioned it early on in the series. This is not capital G God. They, we're not getting into the metaphysical here. Um, these are not gods that have the same sort of uh, qualities that, you know, uh, other religious traditions ascribe to their gods. Um, the Greek tradition is not perfectly unique, but somewhat unique, especially considering the, the sort of like predominant religions nowadays um this particular one this system of faith had gods that were like super fallible and definitely not all powerful um you know these gods are ones that like 
They, they can divide their attention probably more than your average human, but not infinitely. So, you know, it, it might really make sense for a god to simply be busy. They're, they're literally somewhere else. They can't be here right now. Um, for a lot of folks raised in, in some of the, the more common Western religions, like, that's kind of a foreign concept. To me right now, like, you know, I was raised, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition, and, and you know, that, that sticks with me. Even though I'm not a part of it anymore, like it sticks with me just the idea that um, like there is there's this idea of a of a god that is supposed to be like infinitely available. These ones are not so much. Tanisha says, "Are they powerful? Yes. Are they responsible? Yeah. Eh. Eh. Not so much. Not so much." Shotzi Red says, it's true. Once they hit a certain age, you can't ground them. You can talk, but it's their choice whether to listen or not. Um, let's see. What are we talking about here? Sparkle Lovegood. I missed something. Here we go. Sparkle Lovegood says, it feels like that might be a lot like being a parent to an adult children. Sometimes I feel like uh, the challenges of doing so are harder than parenting young children. Interesting. Interesting. I'm pretty sure I just said interesting, but with an M in it instead of an N. Welcome to the remix. We'll go to the remix. Uh, nonplussed mostly. I'm just going to call you non... Well, I'm just going to call you nonplussed. It's most of your name, but I'm going to call you nonplussed. Because I would just call you plussed, except that's literally the opposite of your name. So I could just call you mostly, couldn't I? <laughs> uh, our, our ghostly with the mostly, nonplussed mostly. Maybe it's the god's obsession with fate and prophecy that's keeping him away. He wants Percy to come into his own and try not to interfere with the destiny omniscient but not omnipotent and that is one of those things that we haven't talked about in a little while but that idea of omni right all what all omni omniscient um that's sort of all-knowing and then omnipotent or omnipotent potent meaning powerful all-powerful infinite power knows everything well, omniscient, it seems like there's certainly some of that, but maybe not all of it, right? Because, you know, if again, if we were going by truly omniscient, it would mean Zeus knows exactly who stole the boat, bolt and where it is and what happened to it and all of this. Um, it seems like even omniscient is not necessarily on the table. Semi-omniscient, maybe. Certainly knows more than they could possibly know just, you know, being there in person, but... A lot to discuss. A lot to discuss. Uh, Mirden says, Dionysus's followers got high and parted as a form of worship. Definitely not the modern style of worship. Yes, certainly not. Sparkle Lovegood says, Moe's from the office. <laughs> All right, we'll cap this off with a Mighty Mage special. Mighty Mage says, Poseidon wants Percy to stand up on his own two flippers. <laughs> Unacceptable. Review. So... Percy has been traveling, and finally, we have reached Los Angeles. On their way here, they have a bit of a discussion about, you know, what it's going to look like when they arrive. Finally, we've got a, uh, uh, we, we've got the, the sort of promised meeting. The, the meeting that uh, Percy was summoned to in the ocean at Santa Monica Beach. Um, he descends down there, and he received some gifts and some advice. Now, the gifts seem pretty helpful, but it sounds like there's going to be perhaps a cost to them. They are these three pearls, and when you when you need something, go ahead and crush a pearl at your feet. Hopefully you'll get some kind of help. Uh, Annabeth says there's no such thing as a free lunch. There will be a cost of some kind attached to these pearls. Now, 
there's that, and then there's the advice, which to me seems like maybe the most useless thing that Percy has been given this entire time. Consider this. There is this, there is this, um, I don't know, there's this, there's this, like, trust your instincts advice that Percy gets right here. But also, let's compare that backward against some of the other advice that he's gotten from the Oracle about how, you know, he, you know, he will be betrayed by someone who calls him a friend. Um, uh, do not trust the gifts comes up uh, from, from frankly, from this individual or one like this individual um, just like a very short time before. Uh, and then they're telling Percy, like, trust your instincts. This all seems like the sort of thing that would set me up absolutely to to just like dissolve into into anxiety, right? I'd be paralyzed with indecision here because we have got, you know, this this idea that like, okay, someone can't be someone around you can't be trusted and without a single clue who, that means no one around you can be fully trusted, right? That's the way that that works, isn't it? That's the that's the way that people work. If you know that there's somebody around who can't be trusted, but you don't know which one it is, Unless you have some evidence to point you in a specific direction, that means you can't really trust anyone around you. Also, don't trust the gifts. Um, here are some gifts later on. Uh, you've gotten some gifts elsewhere. You've gotten gifts from from other people, from friends, from foes, like the you know the lotus eaters. What what am I supposed to do with all this? Do I just trust nothing? Do I trust nothing about the world around me? You would think that for some help, y'all can hear me like going off on this. I won't do it for too long, but come on. Come on, we need a little bit more here. You're just you're just making like you're not really giving information nearly as much as you're just removing all sense of trust from the world. All right, all right. I'm just gonna I'm gonna back off from this one. Percy and uh, Grover and Annabeth they head inland. They're looking for DOA recording studios. Um, this is the entrance to the underworld somewhere here in Los Angeles, but of course it's not in the phone book. Uh, they wander around for a while. It gets dark. They get chased by some some street youths into Krusty's Krusty's waterbed shop. Well, it turns out Krusty's is Krusty's, another one of these you know ancient Greek goons, and uh, has got all these beds exactly six feet long, and the way that Procrustes fits people to these beds is to take them captive, and then if they're too tall, chop them off at the ends. If they're too short, stretch them till they fit. What are the odds? What are the odds they stumble upon something like this? Well, it seems like at this point, the odds are apparently pretty good. They manage to they, and by they, I really mean Percy. In this particular instance, Percy does all the work basically himself. Um, he outsmarts Krusty and uh, manages to lop off this dude's head. Here, fortunately, uh, after having raided Krusty's desk, they find that they've got sort of an alternative yellow pages. The only monstrous yellow pages you'll ever need. And there's a map to DOA recording studios inside. Off they go. It's only a block away. With that, everyone, let's head into our second chapter. Chapter 18. Annabeth does obedience school. We stood in the shadows of Valencia Boulevard, looking up at gold letters etched in black marble, DOA Recording Studios. Underneath, stenciled on the glass doors, no solicitors, no loitering, no living. 
It was almost midnight, but the lobby was brightly lit and full of people. Behind the security desk sat a tough-looking guard with sunglasses and an earpiece. I turned to my friend. Okay, you remember the plan? The plan? Grover gulped. Yeah, I, I, I love the plan. Annabeth said, And what happens if the plan doesn't work? Don't think negative. Right, she said. We're entering the land of the dead. I shouldn't think negative. I took the pearls out of my pocket. The three milky spheres that the Nereid had given me in Santa Monica. They didn't seem like much of a backup in case something went wrong. Annabeth put her hand on my shoulder. I'm sorry, Percy, you're right. We'll make it. It'll be fine. She gave Grover a nudge. Oh, right, he chimed in. We got this far. We'll, we'll find the master bolt and we'll save your mum. No problem. I looked at them both and felt really grateful. Only a few minutes before, I'd almost gotten them stretched to death on deluxe waterbeds, and now they were trying to be brave for my sake, trying to make me feel better. I slipped the pearls back into my pocket. Okay, let's whoop some underworld butt. We walked inside the DOA lobby. Muzak played softly on hidden speakers. And I'm going to pause here for a second because I know we have some non-native English speakers uh, around. Muzak is a weird one. M-U-Z-A-K. It's not music quite as much as it's like elevator music. Um, you know, kind of that. It's the sort of thing you would never just like sit and listen to. It's just sort of there. Um, so like elevator music or music when you're on hold or something. They use it for comedic effect in a lot of cartoons, too. The carpet and the walls were steel gray. Pencil cactuses grew on the corners like skeleton hands. The furniture was black leather, and every seat was taken. There were people sitting on couches, people standing up, people staring out of the windows or waiting for the elevator. Nobody moved, or talked, or did much of anything. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see them all just fine, but if I focused on any one of them in particular, they started looking transparent. I could see right through their bodies. The security guard's desk was a raised platform, so we had to look up at him. He was tall and elegant, with chocolate-colored skin and bleached blonde hair shaved military style. He wore tortoiseshell shades and a silk Italian suit that matched his hair. A black rose was pinned to his lapel under a silver name tag. I read the tag and then looked at him in bewilderment. Your name is... Chiron? He leaned across the desk. I couldn't see anything in his glasses except my own reflection, but his smile was sweet and cold, like a python's right before it eats you. I will have precious young lad. He had a strange accent. British, maybe, but also as though he had learned English as a second language. Tell me, mate, do I look like a centaur? No, no. Sir, he added smoothly. I, sir, I said. He pinched the name tag and ran his finger under the letters. Can you read this, mate? It says, Charon. Say it with me, Charon. Charon, 
Amazing. Now, Mr. Caron. Mr. Caron, I said. Well done, he sat back. I hate being confused with that old horseman, and now I may help you little dead ones. His question caught in my stomach like a fastball. I looked at Annabeth for support. Um, we want to go to the underworld, she said. Karen's mouth twitched. Well, that is refreshing. Is it? she asked. Straightforward and honest. No screaming. There must be a mistake, Mr. Caron. He looked us over. How did you die, then? I nudged Grover. Oh, he said. Uh, uh, uh drowned? Uh, in the bathtub? All three of you? Karen asked. We nodded. A big bathtub. Karen looked mildly impressed. I don't suppose you have coins for passage. Normally, with adults, you see, uh, I could charge your American Express or add the ferry price to your last cable bill, but with children... Mm, alas, you never die prepared. I suppose you'll have to take a seat for a few centuries. Oh, but we have coins. I set three golden drachmas on the counter, part of the stash I'd found in Krusty's office desk. Oh, well now... Caron moistened his lips. Real drachmas. Real golden drachmas. I haven't seen these in years. His fingers hovered greedily over the coins. We were so close. Then Caron looked at me. That cold stare behind his glasses seemed to bore a hole through my chest. Here now, he said. You couldn't read my name correctly. Are you dyslexic, lad? No, I said. I'm dead. Caron leaned forward and took a sniff. You're not dead. I should have known. You're a godling. We have to go to the underworld, I insisted. Caron made a growling noise deep in his throat. Immediately, all the people in the waiting room got up and started pacing, agitated, lighting cigarettes, running hands through their hair, and checking their wristwatches. Leave while you can, Caron told us. I'll just take these and forget I saw you. He started to go for the coins, but I snatched them back. No service, no tip. I tried to sound braver than I felt. Karen growled again. A deep, blood-chilling sound. The spirits of the dead started pounding on the elevator doors. It's a shame, too, I sighed. We had more to offer. I held up the entire bag from Krusty's stash. I took out a fistful of drachmas and let the coins spill through my fingers. Charon's growl changed into something more like a tiger's purr. You think I can be bought, godling? Uh, just out of curiosity, how much have you got there? A lot, I said. I bet Hades doesn't pay you well enough for your hard work. 
Oh, you don't know the half of it. How would you like to babysit these spirits all day? Always, please don't let me be dead, or please let me cross for free. I haven't had a pay raise in three thousand years. Do you imagine suits like this come cheap? You deserve better, I agreed. A little appreciation. Respect. Good pay. With each word, I stacked another gold coin on the counter. Charon glanced down at his silk Italian jacket, as if imagining himself in something even better. I must say, lad, you're making some sense now, just a little. I stacked another few coins. I could, uh, I could mention a pay raise while I'm talking to Hades. He sighed. Uh, the boat's almost full anyway. Might as well add you three and be off. He stood, scooped up our money, and said, Come along. We pushed through the crowd of waiting spirits. who started grabbing at our clothes like the wind, their voices whispering things I couldn't make out. Charon shoved them out of the way, grumbling, Freeloaders. He escorted us to the elevator, which was already crowded with the souls of the dead, each one holding a green boarding pass. Charon grabbed two spirits who were trying to get on with us and pushed them back into the lobby. Right, now don't get any ideas while I'm gone, he announced to the waiting room. If anyone tries to move the dial off of my easy listening station again, I'll make sure that you're here for another thousand years, you understand? He shut the doors. He put a key card into a slot in the elevator panel, and we started to descend. What happens to the spirits waiting in the lobby? Annabeth asked. Nothing, Charon said. For how long? Forever, or until I'm feeling generous. Oh, she said. That's fair. Charon raised an eyebrow. Whoever said that death was fair, young miss, you wait until it's your turn. You'll die soon enough where you're going. We'll get out alive, I said. <laughs> I got a sudden dizzy feeling. We weren't going down anymore, but forward. The air turned misty. Spirits around me started changing shape. Their modern clothes flickered, turning into gray hooded robes. The floor of the elevator began swaying. I blinked hard. When I opened my eyes, Charon's creamy Italian suit had been replaced by a long black robe. His tortoiseshell glasses were gone. Where his eyes should have been were empty sockets, like Ares's eyes, except... Charons were totally dark, full of night and death and despair. He saw me looking and said, Well, n n nothing, nothing, I managed. I thought he was grinning, but he wasn't. The flesh of his face was becoming transparent, letting me see straight through into his skull. The floor kept swaying. Grover said, I think I'm getting seasick. When I blinked again, the elevator wasn't an elevator anymore. We were standing in a wooden barge, 
Charon was poling us across a dark, oily river, swirling with bones, dead fish, and other stranger things. Plastic dolls, crushed carnations, soggy diplomas with gilt edges. The river sticks, Annabeth murmured. It's so... Polluted, Charon said. For thousands of years, you humans have been throwing in everything you come across. Hopes, dreams, wishes that never came true. Irresponsible waste management, if you ask me. Mist curled off in the filthy water. Above us, almost lost in the gloom, was a ceiling of stalactites. Ahead, the far shore glimmered with greenish light, the color of poison. Panic closed up my throat. What was I doing here? These people around me, they were dead. Annabeth grabbed hold of my hand. Under normal circumstances, this would have embarrassed me, but I understood how she felt. She wanted reassurance that somebody else was alive on this boat. I found myself muttering a prayer, but I wasn't quite sure who I was praying to. Down here, only one god mattered, and he was the one that I had come to confront. The shoreline of the underworld came into view. Craggy rocks and black volcanic sand stretched inland about a hundred yards to the base of a high stone wall, which marched off in either direction as far as we could see. The sound came from somewhere in the black green gloom echoing off the stones the howl of a large animal uh, old three face is hungry karen said his smile turned to skeletal in the greenish light bad luck for you godlings the bottom of our boat slid into the black sand the dead began to disembark a woman holding a little girl's hand, an old man and an old woman hobbling along with his arm in hand, a boy, no older than I was, shuffling silently along in his gray robe. Charon said, I'd wish you luck, mate, but there isn't any down here. Mind you, don't forget to mention my pay raise. He counted our golden coins into the pouch, then took up his pole. He warbled something that sounded like a Barry Manilow song as he ferried the empty barge back across the river. We followed the spirits up a well-worn path. I'm not sure what I was expecting. Pearly gates or a big black portcullis or something, but the entrance to the underworld looked like a cross between... Airport security and the Jersey Turnpike. There were three separate entrances under one huge black archway that said, You are now entering Erebus. Each entrance had a pass-through metal detector with security cameras mounted on top. Beyond this were toll booths manned by black-robed ghouls like Charon. The howling of the hungry animal was really loud now, but I couldn't see where it was coming from. The three-headed dog, Cerberus, who was supposed to guard Hades' door, was nowhere to be seen. The dead queued up in three lines. Two marked Attendant on Duty, and one marked Easy Death. 
Letter E, letter Z, death. That line was moving right along. The other two were crawling. Okay, what do you figure? I asked Annabeth. The fast lane must go straight to Asphodel Fields, she said. No contest. They don't want to risk judgment from the court because it might go against them. Is a court for dead people? Yeah, three judges. They switch around who sits in the bench. King Minos, Thomas Jefferson, Shakespeare. People like that. Sometimes they look at a life and decide that a person needs a special reward. The fields of Elysium. Sometimes they decide on punishment. But most people, well, they just lived. Nothing special, good or bad. So they go to the Asphodel fields. And do what? Grover said, Imagine standing in a wheat field in Kansas. Forever. Okay, harsh, I said. Not as harsh as that, Grover muttered. Look. A couple of black-robed ghouls had pulled aside one spirit and were frisking him at the security desk. The face of the dead man looked vaguely familiar. He's that preacher who made the news, remember? Grover asked. Yeah, I did remember now. We'd seen him on TV a couple of times at the Yancey Academy dorm. He was this annoying televangelist from upstate New York who'd raised millions of dollars for orphanages and then got caught spending the money on stuff for his mansion, like gold-plated toilet seats and an indoor putt-putt golf course. He died in a police chase when his Lamborghini for the Lord went off a cliff. I said, What are they doing to him? Special punishment from Hades? Grover guessed. The really bad people get his personal attention as soon as they arrive. The fur the kindly ones will set up an eternal torture for him. The thought of the Furies made me shudder. I realized I was in their home territory now. Old Mrs. Dodds would be licking her lips with anticipation. But if he's a preacher, I said, and he believes in a different hell... Grover shrugged. Who says that he's seeing this place the way that we're seeing it? Humans see what they want to see. They're very stubborn, uh, persistent that way. We got closer to the gates. The howling was so loud now it shook the ground at my feet, but I still couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Then, about fifty feet in front of us, the green mist shimmered. Standing just where the path split into three lanes was an enormous, shadowy monster. I hadn't seen it before because it was half-transparent, like the dead. Until it moved, it blended in with whatever had been behind it. Only its eyes and teeth looked solid. And it was staring straight at me. My jaw hung open. All I could think to say was, He's a Rottweiler. I'd always imagined Cerberus as a big black mastiff. But he was obviously a purebred Rottweiler, except, of course, that he was twice the size of a woolly mammoth, mostly invisible, and had three heads. 
The dead walked right up to him. No fear at all. The attendant-on-duty lines parted on either side of him. The easy-death spirits walked right between his front paws and under his belly, which they could do without even crouching. I'm starting to see him better, I muttered. Why is that? I think, Annabeth moistened her lips, I'm afraid it's because we're getting closer to being dead. The dog's middle head craned towards us. It sniffed the air and growled. It can smell the living, I said. But that's okay, Grover said, trembling next to me, because we have a plan. Right, Annabeth said. I'd never heard her voice sound quite so small. A plan. We moved toward the monster. The middle head snarled at us, then barked so loud my eyeballs rattled. (laughs) Can you understand it? I asked Grover. Oh, yeah, he said. I can understand it. What's it saying? I don't think humans have a four-letter word that translates exactly. I took the big stick out of my backpack, a bedpost I'd broken off Krusty's Safari Deluxe floor model. I held it up and tried to channel happy dog thoughts toward Cerberus. Alpo commercials, cute little puppies, fire hydrants. I tried to smile like I wasn't about to die. Hey, big fella, I called up. I bet they don't play with you much. Good boy, I said weakly. I waved the stick. The dog's middle head followed the movement. The other two heads trained their eyes on me, completely ignoring the spirits. I had Cerberus's undivided attention. I wasn't sure that was a good thing. Fetch! I threw the stick into the gloom. A good, solid throw. I heard it go... (laughs) in the river sticks. Cerberus stared at me, unimpressed. His eyes were baleful and cold. So much for the plan. Cerberus was now making a new kind of growl, deeper down in his three throats. Um, Grover said, Percy? Yeah? I just thought that you'd want to know. Yeah? Cerberus, he's saying that we've got ten seconds to pray to a god of our choice. After that, well, he's hungry. Wait, Annabeth said. She started rifling through her pack. Uh Uh-oh, I thought. Five seconds. Grover said. Do we run now? Annabeth produced a red rubber ball, the size of a grapefruit. It was labeled Waterland, Denver, Colorado, but before I could stop her, she raised the ball and marched straight up to Cerberus. She shouted, Hey, you see the ball? You want the ball, Cerberus? Sit. Cerberus looked as stunned as we were. All three of his heads cocked sideways. Six nostrils dilated. Sit, 
Annabeth called again. I was sure at any moment she would become the world's largest milk-bone dog biscuit, but instead, Cerberus licked his three sets of lips, shifted on his haunches, and sat immediately, crushing a dozen spirits who had been passing underneath him in the easy death line. The spirits made muffled hisses as they dissipated, like air let out of tires. Annabeth said, Good boy. She threw Cerberus the ball. He caught it in his middle mouth. It was barely big enough for him to chew, and the other head started snapping at the middle one, trying to get the new toy. Drop it, Annabeth ordered. Cerberus's head stopped fighting and looked at her. The ball was wedged between two of his teeth like a tiny piece of gum. He made a loud, scary whimper and then dropped the ball, now slimy and bitten nearly in half at Annabeth's feet. <coughs> Good boy. She picked up the ball, ignoring the monster spit all over it. She turned towards us. Now, go. Easy deathline, it's faster. I said, but now, she ordered, in the same tone she was using on the dog. Grover and I inched forward warily. Cerberus started to growl. Stay, Annabeth ordered the monster. If you want the ball, stay. Cerberus whimpered, but he stayed where he was. What about you? I asked Annabeth as we passed her. I know what I'm doing, Percy, she muttered. At least I'm pretty sure. Grover and I walked between the monster's legs. Please, Annabeth, I prayed, don't tell him to sit down again. We made it through. Cerberus wasn't as scary-looking from the back. Annabeth said, Good dog. She held up the tattered red ball and probably came to the same conclusion I did. If she rewarded Cerberus, there would be nothing left for another trick. She threw the ball anyway. The monster's mouth, leftmost mouth, immediately snatched it up, only to be attacked by the middle head while the right one moaned in protest. While the monster was distracted, Annabeth walked briskly underneath its belly and joined us at the metal detector. How did you do that? I asked her, amazed. Obedient school, she said breathlessly, and I was surprised to see there were tears in her eyes. When I was little, at my dad's house, we had a Doberman. Never mind that, Grover said, tucking up my shirt. Come on. We were about to bolt through the easy death line when Cerberus moaned pitifully from all three mouths. Annabeth stopped. She turned to face the dog, which had done a 180 to look at us. Cerberus panted expectantly, the tiny red ball in pieces in a puddle of drool at its feet. Good boy, Annabeth said, but her voice sounded melancholy and uncertain. The monster's heads turned sideways as if worried about her. I'll, I'll bring you another ball soon, Annabeth promised faintly. Would you like that? The monster whimpered. I didn't need to speak dog to know Cerberus was still waiting for the ball. Good dog. I'll come visit you soon. I... I promise. Annabeth turned to go. Let's go. Grover and I pushed through the metal detector, which immediately screamed and set off flashing red lights. 
Unauthorized possessions. Magic detected. Cerberus started to bark. <laughs> we burst through the easy death gate, which had started even more alarms blaring and raced into the underworld. A few minutes later, we were hiding, out of breath, in the rotten trunk of an immense black tree as security ghouls scuttled past, yelling for backup from the Furies. Grover murmured, Okay, well, Percy, what have we learned today? That three-headed dogs prefer red rubber balls over sticks? No, Grover told me. We've learned that your plans really, really bite. I wasn't sure about that. I thought maybe Annabeth and I had both had the right idea. Even here in the underworld, everybody, even monsters, needed a little attention once in a while. I thought about that as we waited for the ghouls to pass. I pretended not to see Annabeth wipe a tear from her cheek as she listened to the mournful keening of Cerberus in the distance, longing for his new friend. And there it is, gang. The end of the chapter. That's it. A new dog friend? But it's gone already? Dang it. Alright, just a quick second. I'll be right back. Alright. So, y'all... Jem said, I made it. Shati says, so sleepy. Sleep. Food. All right. So, everyone, what do y'all think? What do you think about that? Rollet says, that was adorable, but I think there's something between Annabeth and Cerberus. It does seem that way, or at the very least, you know, between Annabeth and a dog that looks like Cerberus. I got the impression that they had a dog like this back when she was young and I do wonder if maybe she's sort of having this sort of pang of 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 memory about this dog then again you know what out here just about anything's possible and maybe it is really with Cerberus itself we'll have to find out later on won't we Rollet said can godly animals have kids interesting another interesting question yeah can you know are there like could there be little three-headed puppies and would that be cute or annoying because you got to imagine, like, at any one time, one of those three ain't happy. And then it's making that, like, that, that keening noise. Mm. Mm. Van says, yeah, I feel like there's definitely something there. Annabeth was weirdly emotional. Yeah, definitely, like, unexpectedly emotional there. Hannah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Gwendog says, Sam, do you know how many different voices you do slash have, like, out of all the books? I don't. I do not know precisely. I could probably tally it up. I tend to assess them less as a list and more of a matrix. Um, I've actually got a, a, a matrix in my spreadsheet there um, where I sort of one axis is a bunch of the regional accents I can do. So that's the, I guess, the accent axis. And the other side is sort of a list of different adjustments I make to my voice. Um, you know, some of them are like posture, like like vocal cord posture and mouth posture and that sort of thing. Some of them are like speech patterns, such as, you know, like, um, I think the best one is cluttering. 
um, which is essentially what Fudge did. You know, talking, talking a lot like this. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of the, the the need to fill all available space with 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 words at 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 all times. Right, that sort of thing, which is it's kind of like a stutter, but it's not quite the same thing. Uh, so yeah, just various things like that. I, I keep a matrix of of all these things, and then uh, you know where I, I can drop different points on there, different collections of points, and craft a voice using that. Essentially, yeah. Um, uh, Van says I had no idea that had a name. I feel smarter now. Well, don't okay now. Don't feel too smart because that's a name that I gave it. I don't know if that's the precise title for it, but that is what I call it: cluttering. Um, that's uh some of the some of the other ones I do have more proper names for, but that particular one, that's one I made up myself. So you can call it that, but I don't think any I don't know if anybody will have like anything to say about it. Yep, everyone who has to take off, have a fantastic week. <laughs> you don't have to feel dumb. Frankly, what you've learned here is something true. I think I think there are too many people who feel smart having learned something that might not necessarily be true. So I think you should feel like you've gained some truth here, all right? Even though it doesn't feel like you learned a new full thing, at least you've got something that's true, something that's real. Bearden says, Annabeth uh, Griselda Chase with all those memories. Annabeth Griselda Chase. Uh, JCA says, either that or something bad happens to her Doberman and she blames herself. Happened, past tense, happened to her Doberman. Um, It is definitely possible. Um, JCA says maybe reminded her of her dad and good times before she met stepmom. That's also very popular. I think very possible. Um, one thing I want to talk about here, there's a, there's kind of a, a, a lack of foundation for some of this stuff. So we are left to guess a lot about these characters and not just the characters, but our, our places as well. Let's compare this against Harry Potter, right? In our first book our first and you know y'all I, I wasn't joking earlier we really are rounding up on the end of book one here we are within our i think we're within two streams of the end i think we've got uh yep we've got 19 and 20 next week and then 21 and 22 the week after that and this book is over baby that's it that's it for book one um so in other words at this point in the first harry potter book we know hogwarts castle fairly well we don't know about its secrets necessarily but I don't feel like we got to know Camp Half-Blood very much at all. In a similar vein, you know, we know a lot about Hermione. We know a lot about who she is. We know, and, and some of this is hindsight, of course, right? We don't we don't learn something in book six that's like, oh, this this interesting thing about her family has like, you know, colored our perception of of her this entire time. No, it seems like we've we've got a pretty solid understanding of Hermione of Ron, like it just as, as of their introductions, we feel like we know them fairly well. It seems like, uh, Rick Reardon has taken a bit of a different tack, right? A different, a different method here, trying to maintain some of that mystery. And I'm going to be curious to see how it all plays out because, you know, as opposed to Hermione, who like, really, we kind of understand who that character is as a whole, for the most part, as of the end of book one, like I think we really know Hermione pretty well. Certainly we know Harry pretty well. That's a little bit different because I think we know Percy pretty well as well. Um, uh, but, you know, Grover and Annabeth, if those are our um, Hermione and uh, Ron, we don't know them very well compared to Harry Potter. Um, and then, yeah, I was just thinking, I was thinking a lot today about how we just did not spend very much time at Camp Half-Blood. The... The Harry Potter series is really defined by returning to a place and coming back. And it's really defined by that, 
that sense of home. And I think that is kind of one of our themes within all this is that sense of home, but home with kind of a a capital H. Not simply meaning the place where you reside, but meaning the place where you belong. That was that was what that was what Hogwarts was for Harry. We it was said explicitly at the end there, but as we as we go through that series, like we really there's a lot of discussion about belonging somewhere and being accepted somewhere and and being who you are somewhere. This one is a little bit different. It seems like Rick Reardon is making a bit more of a play toward going out and kind of making it on your own. A lot of what Harry Potter was about was, you know, finding the right people around you. And this one, it's a lot about independence. It's a lot about um, uh, about standing on your own two feet. It's a lot about uh, relying on yourself and not relying on on uh, others around you. It's, it's definitely an interesting contrast to Harry Potter. Europa says, we're in Percy's head, so we're learning sensitive and painful information about them together. Yeah, exactly. Um, even so, though, I think, you know, even if even if Harry Potter were told from the first-person perspective, uh, a lot of what, you know, there are a few moments where somebody sort of like, where, where Harry notices something, a look on Ron's face when they talk about, you know, the, the money that a particular family may or may not have, um, or th- that different families may or may not have, um, that sort of stuff. But in general, like, a lot of this stuff is very upfront, Jem says, home is something Percy wants too. And I definitely think you're right. Um, but it seems like we're not really like, it, it doesn't seem like Percy gets to stay there very long. He's out here in the world, out out heading to Hades to, uh, you know, retrieve his mom from the, the, the depths of undeath, or the depths of death. Um, Vanzia's Live says, Hogwarts was definitely a character in that series. Interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, it definitely like the, the characters. And I will say, I I would I look at it less that Hogwarts was a character and I look at it more as I think people can have relationships with things that aren't people. I would say, you know, like I, I think there has been some some identification that like Hogwarts is a character and I would just say instead I would look at other books and 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 say like no there are some there are some relationships like that and I think they're to me that doesn't make them a character as much as it just means like I think it's good to be attentive to the relationships people have with non-person entities. With, you know, uh, like a pets is one, but I think even pets can kind of be considered people in a lot of ways, just in the in the value and the format of those relationships. But places, items, um, these things, people form relationships with these things without them being characters at all sometimes. And so I think it's really interesting and I think we should look more at that. I think it's a great observation that, that Van has made because I think ultimately what you're talking about, Van, is not that like, oh, it's Hogwarts as a person. I know that's not what you're saying. What you've identified is that there's a relationship that Harry has with Hogwarts that's unique and personal um, and vitally important. And I think, yeah, I think let's let's expand that understanding out into other things. Um, while we're on the subject of The Hobbit which we aren't, I guess I just made the wildest segue there. Um, I was just, I should say, hearkening back to The Hobbit. Um, I think we're we're seeing Bilbo start to form a relationship with this ring that he's picked up. It is this this thing that sits in his pocket and we know that it's on his mind. Uh, we get this mention that he wants to, you know, he, he thinks like, I don't have enough time to put it on. 
or I think it was like he didn't have enough time to put it on, but like it's there, it's in his mind. Forming relationships with these these things, places, objects, etc. Jem says, home does not always have to be a place, but sometimes a person or an idea. I think so. You know, I think there are some people who feel at home, uh, they feel more at home traveling than they do at a specific location that they call home. Woodson says, it's weird. I just do not buy into this story the way I did with Harry Potter. I haven't put my finger on why, but it just doesn't seem to have the same ring of truth. I'm not willing to buy into the world in the same way. It's definitely a different story. And I will say overall, I think I think it feels slightly younger than Harry Potter does. Um, and the one big thing that I will point to with that is its structure. Um, its structure, its, its format, um, if you're looking for kind of a, a heading for this idea... We've talked a ton about this with The Hobbit. The way that it's formatted, the way that it is structured is one wherein each chapter has its own arc. I'm going to drink I'm going to bring some some contrasts to to Harry Potter here in just a second, so stick with me. Um, this book, The Hobbit, each each one of these I believe began as a bedtime story as a series of bedtime stories. Um, Rick Reardon, I believe, would tell this to his son, who I think was struggling in a lot of ways with, um, as I remember, struggling with dyslexia and struggling with, you know, kind of feeling like school wasn't necessarily his place to thrive. He was just sort of surviving there. Um, in the same way, The Hobbit began as a series of bedtime stories, or at the very least, you know, maybe not tied to that time, but, you know, uh, stories for children. And I think what we... What we get from this is a very episodic nature. There is a, a chapter, and within that chapter, there's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And by the end of that chapter, sort of the main conflict of that chapter has been resolved. When you end a chapter in Percy Jackson, it really feels like you've come to a conclusion of something. Um, you've just discovered something new and something big, and, and you can take that moment and sort of sit with that. Um, the same with The Hobbit. Uh, every time a chapter ends, you feel like you have, you 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 feel pretty confident that next chapter you're going to be dealing with a totally different conflict. It's going to be a, it's not going to be a continuation, as opposed to something like Harry Potter, wherein that was structured very differently. We would have arcs that, not not just arcs that lasted multiple chapters, wherein you know they would they would sort of rise to a conflict in one chapter and then that chapter would end and then we'd start a new chapter and then we would we would sort of experience the climax of that that conflict and then the falling action of that and move into a second thing but not just that there are also all of these sort of underwoven subconflicts and and these little threads and storylines that that pick up um sort of pick up speed and start to come together over time for instance in this book we have we haven't seen anything like the um, i think the like hermione's Library Adventures seems like a prime example of um, the sort of like underlying threads in Harry Potter. There's that. There is occlumency lessons in Harry Potter. There is, uh, you know, Quidditch development and um, like like a Quidditch practice. And, you know, what is, what is, uh, uh, I almost called him Jack Black. What is Sirius Black doing uh, sort of off in the distance? This, this you know, um, uh, this fugitive from the law. All of these threads sort of develop very slowly over time, and we've got a few of those in this, but I would say overall, this book feels like it was 
it was designed a little younger. It was geared a little younger um, and doesn't rely so much on, on these like big constructions of narratives flowing from one to the other. It seems like it's kind of trying to tell individual stories at a very nice pace. And it's got a couple of through lines, right? We've got these these gifts. We've, of course, got the prophecy, which is always a, an important sort of like through line, an important thread uh, running through a lot of these young adult stories. Um, it is, it's quiet, um, and it's sort of, it, it works at a really steady pace. It's very regular. Um, so, yeah, I'll be interested to see sort of how folks continue to feel about this as we move on, because I do think this, you know, um, I think... Harry Potter developed over time, certainly, um, but I think this one does as well. And uh, I, what I always urge folks, and what I urge folks at the beginning of this series is, you know, this is this is the first book, and if you go back to Harry Potter, like um, I think I think the world depicted there is more different from our own, um, and required a lot more sort of building out. But uh, ultimately, that first book was fairly young as well, and I think as we move forward, um, we'll start to see these this series grow and mature in the same way that we did with Harry Potter. <laughs> Woodson said, my phone went rogue. <laughs> I can see it. I can see it. Um, yeah, Woodson talking about sort of the, uh, perhaps it's not an age issue because, you know, Redwall books clearly were meant fairly young. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how we all feel about this uh, as we as we move through it. Uh, Van says, this is a great point. I hadn't noticed that. But as you say, it's a very it's very obvious in hindsight now. Uh, Mirden says, now I need to see an alt version with Jack Black as serious. Honestly, and I don't, you know, I, I think there are a lot of really excellent examples of comedic actors playing dramatic roles and having that just be like an, a fantastic outcome. Um, I think we've seen a lot of dramatic actors go comedic. For instance, I think De Niro makes a really funny comedic actor uh, when, they, when, when sort of put in the right position. I would like to see Jack Black in a really serious role. I don't know if Jack Black would be interested in anything like that. It seems like he sort of lives his life by this sort of uh, Bacchanalian uh, attitude overall. Um, so maybe he wouldn't be interested, but I would be interested to see Jack Black in a really serious role. Does anybody know if Jack Black has done <laughs> serious roles? Like, I definitely would not consider myself like, oh, Jack Black is like, you know, top 10 for me. But I, I would definitely be interested to see that. I feel like I feel like he's got he's got a range that I don't see very often. I just, ate a, I just ate a fruit bowl. Y'all, thank you so much for sharing about the show. As per usual, my name is Sam. This has been Sidecar Stories. You can find these episodes um, up on YouTube 24 hours, roughly, before the next episode will be live. So in other words, whatever time this releases on YouTube for you, that means come back exactly 24 hours later, and hopefully that is when the live show will be. But if you want more sure answers, go ahead and head over to the Discord. The link has just popped up there in chat. It is linktree slash sidecar stories, linktr.ee slash sidecar stories. That is the one to follow. That's the hub that will connect you to all things sidecar stories. And that's the link to share if you want to share about the show. Um, Jade, Jade, you're the one. You're the all-star who's been who who shared that one around. So y'all, thank you a ton for doing that. That's the one. If if we want to bring other people in here to experience this, to have a great time with us, uh, and to read along, that's the one to use. Um, y'all can find me here uh, Tuesdays through Thursdays, and then randomly at like after midnight. Uh, we did a couple this week. Howdy! Thank you very much for being here, everyone. Have a great week, and I'll see y'all later. Bye bye.